Hello and welcome to the Weekend Update. It's Friday the 24th of March 2023. I'm Christopher Gallagher. Uh, This weekend we're not looking ahead to any uh, specific Celtic game because we are on the international break. But as always we've got some news, some features, some questions. uh, And today I am joined by Christian Wolf. Hello Christian, how are you? Hello Christopher. It's the weekend. I'm ready to update. Seems a good match. Here, Here we go. How long have you had that on your kind of radar? For About seven seconds. I'm, so I'm sure that was executed it quite well. Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. Do you know what? Yes, yeah. you did. Uh, nice, thanks. How are things, Christian? How is how's life? What's happening? Talk me through it. Oh, it's busy. Busy at work. Busy off work. Um, but other than that, yeah, no, it's good. Um, I had a couple of birthdays. Well, I had one last week. Not me in the family. I uh, got another big one coming up. So a lot of preparation for that. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's spring, Christopher. Listen, spring, it's, spring. It's, it's, yeah, it's fantastic. Spring is on the verge of springing, sprunging. Spring is on the verge of being sprung. Um, this is a good opening. I yes. like it. We're off to a good start as well. Yeah. Um, so. no, it's great. It's great to have you here, Christian, as always. Um, we've got some news. Obviously, uh, we covered a lot of the kind of news this week. Overall, there's not been a lot of kind of breaking news or anything with Celtic. They've got the, Celtic uh, legends are going down to Liverpool to raise money for a charity, which is obviously fantastic. Um, 4,000 fans going down, which is absolutely amazing and generous uh, at this time. So great from that point of view. Uh, Although some of the legends, mm, mm, (laughs) Simon Donnelly, mm, you know, um, anyway, that's my... You you got a wee thing about him, don't you? I really do. I really do. I really... Was it, was it not Ian Dugan's favourite player when he grew up as well? No, I, right. yeah, yeah, yes, because Paul McStay, I think Paul McStay or John Collins asked him who his favourite player was and he said Simon Donnelly. <laughs> so, Fair enough. <laughs> but wild. But yeah, um, but we do have some uh, information. We, we're going to look at, we're going to talk about international football, we're going to look at some of the lone players, but I think as well we're going to kind of focus on the, the news, uh, some quotes from is it A22 about Celtic and Rangers being included in their revamped European Super League. I'll just read out some of the, the quotes and stuff. A22 Chief Executive Bernd Richard, the management company involved in the new format, confirmed he has spoken to clubs from Scotland about the new places within the European Super League. Um, a minimum of 14 midweek league games could be involved for participating teams and it could bring about a significant increase in revenue. A new 60 to 80 team multi-league format, which would include promotion and relegation, would re-energise leagues living in the shadow of the EPL, the German claims. He's quoted as saying, and by the way, can I just say, this opening line is a really good way, whether we want to be part of it or not, it's actually a pretty good way of selling it to certain clubs. Now we have a lot of domestic kings in less relevant leagues. You're the kings of your domestic territory, but unable to compete with the league next door for the European crowns. For those clubs who are locked in a domestic league with limited potential and where UEFA is not really a truly open and sustainable second frontier for their ambition, we want to be able to provide a more significant earnings on the back of a higher amount of guaranteed matches. We want a more predictable, sustainable path within Europe, even though promotion and relegation should always comply with the sport and merit principle. 
Uh, he was asked about Celtic and Rangers and he said, I talked to clubs from Scotland, but I must respect their confidentiality and will fulfil that. It is still the case that the whole system of UEFA is set up to control everything and really hope that at some stage we'll have another discussion about the future of European football. It's striking to me when clubs make a proposal for an alternative European competition, they are threatened with being expelled. I think that football deserves a more open dialogue and because, yeah, because all your aims are you know, done yes. with the socialist. Best, yes, best essentially, best yeah. interest at heart. I can show you have spoken to a lot of people. Um, again, it's just I, I just love that line. We have a lot of domestic kings in less relevant leagues. Um, I, I did enjoy the line that he said. I've spoken to Scottish club, but I have to respect the confidentiality. Like he spoke to anybody else, like it went to Hibs and Aberdeen and Ross County. So yeah, it might have been them. So I won't tell you which clubs. Well, well, hold on a minute. Right, genuinely, hold on a minute. Okay, here we go. No, no, what I would say is, you know, you know, 60 to 80 clubs, and it can't be every single club from every single league, right? But they're going to need a shit ton of clubs, essentially. And when you start kind of breaking down the top leagues, you know, the top five, and then you kind of break it down to the top 10, I'm not saying he would have spoken to anyone outside of Celtic Rangers, of course. What I am saying, though, and I've always said this about Hibs and Hearts, you know, if if you're talking about people investing in football clubs and investing in, you know, clubs that have a potential to do something, I've always said I think the Edinburgh clubs would potentially, if they were run right, um, and, you know, there was some interesting articles from the uh, one of the um, kind of big funders of Hearts last week, you know, if they were run right, being based in Edinburgh, having that support, you know, there's a lot of potential there. Not to take us on, yeah. we'd bar them. Yeah, but, no, no. I, I mean, I mean, the alternative is you go, uh, you know, you look at Queen's Park and you just move them back into Hampton, and that's your third club. So, uh, funnily enough, before we get to the European stuff, um, when we were the League Cup final, um, we were around at Chris Bowd's house, uh, and it was myself, Alan, uh, Bowd, our good friend Andy, and um, Marek as well. And Andy McCaffrey brought one of his friends, and his friend is a Queen's Park. Massive Queen's Park supporter, um, been his whole life. And I was asking him, and I was like, what's the kind of plans uh, in regards to Queen's Park? Like, you know, have, have you got kind of plans for next season? And he basically said, the, like, the board didn't expect them to get promotion this season and that everyone's a bit worried with if they get promotion because they were expecting in about three or four years and they were building towards that. But because they're All top right. of the league just now, it's a bit like, oh shit, we're ahead of schedule and we're not prepared for it, so that could be a bit of a problem. Oh, so it's a nice problem to have, but it's, you know, I, I think that's a club that seems to be quite well run. So yeah, there's, I think there's absolutely potential there. Well, we'll see. I, I'm looking forward to the hips in the European Super League, though. But, they uh, could win it. Probably hips it. They're probably hips it. Um, so, I mean, on this, yeah. um, you know, we've talked about this, and I'm sure, again, we'll have maybe another deep dive moving forward. But I think this is kind of an interesting thing to look at and discuss, obviously, during international break. Um, this is just, yeah. I, this is I mean, just hitting yeah. the, the mid-card teams to kind of get them on board before they go back to revamp something. Yeah, I mean... No, it's 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 a clever statement, right? Because as with every statement, it's that are good. It hits on some some truth, and the main truth in European football now is that the Premier League is running away with it. And that in terms of money, status, best coaches and best players. So when when they talk about you know domestic kings, 
that's an appeal to clubs like yeah, Celtic, RB Salzburg, you know, Dynamo Zagreb, I'm sure. But who's he's really is behind that is the domestic kings in, in Italy and Spain and France, you know. Um because they're they will be the main drivers for this and they are worried about the Premier League. Which in one sense is you know, it is the rich clubs who probably not run that well. A lot of them have offer foreign regimes backing them. Um, and they're not exactly, you don't want to feel sorry for them. But at the same time, it is an undeniable truth that the Premier League is, you know, the position they are. They'll keep, you know, all the money will gravitate towards them. Unless something happens with the TV deal, but we said that for about twenty years, yeah. um, so I don't know if it happens. I think that is the case. So, but I think that it, it is a, a problem that needs solved because I mean, the, the, you, we know this as, as Celtic fans that you are kind of stuck in the cycle of not having the good enough competition domestically, but being unable to take the step internationally a lot to do because of your domestic situation. So if you just look at the, the pure format, I, would I like Celtic to play 14 games in Europe instead of six guaranteed? Absolutely. I think that would be much better for the club. Um, am I... I don't think... I, I would have to see the suggestion. I don't think I'm intrinsically opposed to have a European club system of promotion and relegation. Right, so it's okay. So you go into the Champions League, or you go into the Europa, League, or you go into the Conference League. You know, if you want to try and think bigger, I think that is a big change for a lot of people. I also don't think it's intrinsically bad. I don't think it's as altruistic as you know that statement because this is about essentially kind of making those Barcelona's, Real Madrid's, PSG's, Bayern Munich. Um, you know, AC Milan, Juventus float up towards the Premier League. But if if that can float up a lot of other clubs, you know, in the wake of that, that's how they have to sell it as well. So I, I do think this is quite an elaborate way of trying to pressure UEFA to do more because this is what usually happens. This is what we talked about before, Christopher. The, the cycle is clubs are not happy with the Champions League. They threaten to break out there's changes to the Champions League. And then it's, it keeps repeating and keeps repeating that, which, and there will be changes to the Champions League after the season after next as well. So I just, I think as long as you have these clubs in England being happy with it, you will need their full backing if you want to something else. But I think it is a way of forcing UEFA's hand to do some of the changes that, that, not even the second bracket. I think more the top bracket of clubs out the, outside the Premier what they want. But they clubs are also smart enough to know that if they're going to do that, they will need the backing of, you know, the, the mid-sized leagues. You know, everything from Netherlands, Belgium, down, down all the way down to, you know, the Scandinavian countries and everything in between, really. Um, we are kind of caught between, like, a rock and a hard place in regards to... I remember when the Super League came up and... You know, people were talking about how disgusting the idea was of this breakaway and how, you know, um, treacherous it was. Then it's like they kind of started to frame UEFA as this, like, um, kind of, you know, 
betrayed sort of organization when in reality we all know the kind of corruption and you know the how uefa is essentially formed to kind of keep the big clubs rich and you know keep the clubs the mid-sized clubs specifically like us and like you know like the the dutch teams and the belgian teams and the portuguese teams and i know some of those teams do well get into the last kind of uh, remnants of european competition each season but you know for me i i, I don't like uefa because i think they're corrupt and i think they're badly done and this new system seems to be about marketing and about you know really giving platforms to bigger clubs to make money back because they're all in financial trouble do you know like yeah and i think european football do need a huge change because the differences are getting bigger and bigger um I, and I absolutely agree. I had Barcelona and Real Madrid be pushing for this. If Spain was the top league and all the money, no, they wouldn't. But you, I definitely do think you need a change somehow. Yeah. And the, the only thing, I guess, as you said with UEFA, I don't trust them at all. I think they are a club, an organization more for the... They seem to be gaining their power from a lot of the richer clubs, whereas an organization like FIFA, the people who runs FIFA... Actually, gets the power from most of the, the, you know, the continents outside of Europe, and you know, you know, the, and, and the support there. But something do need to change. Now, I think the, the thing with UEFA, at least, maybe it's a case of better the, the devil you know, because it is an organization. It is supposedly democratic. Everybody has that is the, the fundament that is there. It's in a way is the EU, you know, of of European football. So. I would rather have the structural changes that is needed through UEFA because at least it is some sort of democratic organization, you know, in, in theory instead. I'm not quite sure I would like a PLC kind of owned by a lot of clubs to, to run the European competitions as well. But some of these changes that is in this format, I think I'd be quite open to. I just don't know if I trust the people who run it. And that's not that I trust UEFA, but I'd rather those changes came within UEFA. And maybe this is a way of forcing UEFA to to actually accept those changes. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. The first thing would be, you know, if I mean, well, from a purely practical point of view, if A22 got the agreement and there was 80 clubs, 60 to 80 clubs, apparently they're looking at, right? Let's say 80 clubs were like, yeah, we'll do it. Yeah, that's cool. Would those clubs have to resign from UEFA? And if they did resign from UEFA, would that mean that their home leaks would have to resign for UEFA? Or would you be kicked out? I know there was kind of threatened to be kicked out of their home league and all that. It all seems really complicated. But this guy's talking with such... This Bernd Richter is talking with such confidence that it's just a matter of time. Yeah, but Bernd... I'm a pal, Bernd. Obviously, this... A lot of reason why the European Super League fell down was one, uh, the format because it was closed on just a few clubs and the PR of it. So obviously they go, okay, the, the PR needs to change it. But no, you're right. I mean, that's that's why I, I doubt these things because not only see if Celtic joined, if the Scottish Football Association probably wouldn't be able to have Celtic in the SFPL if they wanted to have Scotland in European competitions. Right, I, I think it will be as, as simple as that. And the players who then would play for Celtic in this competition, 
would they be able to represent their countries ah, okay, in, yeah. in, in a UEFA competition? So I think it's, I think it will be tied up to that. And that will be the threat from UEFA. But I guess UEFA is, I keep comparing them to the EU, which I think it's a lot of threats. There's a lot of like anger. And then in the end, it falls down on a compromise. Right. And I think this is all, I think this is an, an elaborate way of trying to push UEFA to make the changes these clubs want, but within UEFA, because everybody don't really, they, they say they might be up for that fight or breakaway league, but uh, you know, I, I doubt somebody would actually pull the trigger that they would get this not to have enough leverage, but they might have enough power to kind of force UEFA into the changes to want. But because this is what always happens. Changes are coming to the Champions League format, even you know in a year's time, and that is because we've had these cycles before. The clubs going, ah, we're going to break away, and then yeah, if it goes okay, here's a compromise, we'll do this, and then a few years goes along, here's ah, we're going to break away again, and then okay, here's some more changes. So, so I guess for us, like a Celtic fans, we go, what are these changes, and, and how will they impact Celtic? Are they will they be good or will they be bad? And I think overall, the changes that are coming soon. I mean, yeah, it's, I think they're pretty positive for something. Do I talk about them just now? Yeah, so from 24-25, essentially, um, there's a couple more teams. Champions League will go from 32 teams to 36. So you've got four more teams. Um, those four teams are coming from... One team is coming from the third place team of the league ranked fifth by US, UFR. Gets another automatic ones. So it's usually something like France, could be Portugal... Um, then you get one more additional teams via the Champions Path qualifying roof. So if Scotland dropped out of, you know, the current coefficient place, you know, there were one more place for Celtic to, to fight for. And then the third and the fourth place goes to the two countries with the highest coefficient score in the current season. So this season, that would be something like the fifth Premier League team in England. And actually, the, the second team in, in the Netherlands would go in. So, like, it's complica- complicated, right? But the, the, at the moment, Scotland is still getting automatic qualification, you know, to the Champions League. Celtic win as it stands now; they will still get that. But the format is changing, Christopher. Instead of having these eight groups of four, which is that's last year's that's passe, passe, man. Now, some people call it the Swiss model. I call it. The Royal Rumble, <laughs> right? So essentially, what you do, you put all those thirty-six teams into one group, and and no, you won't be playing thirty-five games along the way. Um, yet it's probably coming soon, but essentially, you will have four seeding groups of nine team, nine teams in each seeding group, and you will then play eight games. So you'll play two games against two teams in each one of those seeding groups. Um, so you play eight games, four home, four on the way. So essentially, you're playing eight different teams. You're having four home games, you're having four away games. See all everybody's points put into one big table. And that's essentially it. You have a 30 league, 36 team um, division, essentially. But we're not finished yet, Christopher. So the way you then decide who goes to the knockout, is it the top 16? Oh, no, it's not. It's the top eight goes into the last 16. 
And then from number nine to number 24, you go into a playoff round against each other. So if you're among the top 24, for example, which you know, Celtics should, you'd think they, they have a hope of, of doing that, you go into a playoff round to get into the last 16. So essentially a last 32. Like, so you have that. So for me, two more games, I think that is a decent then chance to get into the knockouts as well, even though there's another knockout round forward. So overall, I think it's positive. Like maybe we can, we can put this on the drive, but very quickly, I, I kind of put up a table of how the Champions League would look this season if you put them all into one pot, right? And there's a lot of caveats to that because people, you know, teams would have been already out and might be not playing to the full potential or, you know, resting players in the last couple of games. Um, and also it's just six games. But Celtic would have got uh, number 30 <laughs> in in that league, Um last season uh, out of 32 teams. But essentially, they would have had two points after six games. And Atletico Madrid had five points, and they would have been the, the last team to get into the knockout. So with two games left, essentially, Celtic, even if they've started those six games, one of them would be three points away from getting a, a, a knockout stage. So for me, it kind of makes more games is good. You face more teams. You, I think that table... It, it, it will be more alive the whole way through. I, I don't think you'll have, you know, any dead robbers really. I won't have many. And even see if you lose your first six games, see if you win your last two, you could still have a chance. So but for me, it's, I think it's like, sounds quite fun, to be honest. Uh, we'll put this out on Twitter as well, the kind of, uh, if, if last season was the, the format coming up. But if you look at it, like, there's entire groups that qualify. Like, there's entire, like, you know, Group B and Group, uh, you know, Group B and Group D. Every team from that qualified. That's Essen- right. Essentially, what this shows, though, is that we were the third worst team in the Champions League. It does, so, but it also shows who was the worst. It does show who was the worst. Part was was Rangers. By, right. by some distance. By but, some yeah, distance. I mean, with that, um, I mean, it's one big giant table, but the table's plenty three, really, isn't it? It's It's basically... Three groups, really? Yeah, and then you look at like the top eight teams: Bayern Munich, Napoli, Liverpool, City, Benfica, PSG, Real Madrid, Chelsea, and then the next sixteen. Yeah, okay, yeah, it's pretty much you know Porto, Leipzig, Bruges, Spurs, AC Milan, Inter, Eintracht, Dortmund, Barca, Sporting, Marseille, Shakhtar, RB Salzburg, Ajax, Leverkusen, Atletico Madrid. So. Yeah, it is. You can kind of see you end up where kind of where you, you expect them to end up anyway. But I think for a group like a team of for Celtic, it kind of takes away. Okay, you still might get a, a tough draw, you know, if you get a couple of good, really good teams in the top tier and so on. But to be honest, like you'll be facing two teams from pot four as well, right? Like that you wouldn't. So before you would have faced two teams for the top pot two teams for the second, two teams, or one team from each one of those, and you wouldn't face anyone for yourself, but you would face two teams that is in your your pot as well. So that, if you win those, that's six points. That might, you know, seven, eight points might get you into the knockout. So 
Yeah, I think I think it's fresh. I also think that you know it gives a different perspective. Maybe it'll allow uh, more attacking football if there's you know two extra games, two people from the, the same pot as you it might encourage a little bit more attacking football. I think every point counts, right? And I think you will probably whereas before you, I mean, Celtic was pretty much out of it after three games, like in in terms of actually getting to, uh, at least the top two, like realistically, but. I think essentially you can have a bad start here, but you still want, you'll still be in it pretty much like until the last couple of games because it can, you know, change so quickly. So I think for a format, this, this suits Celtic well. I think it's two extra guaranteed games. I think if they do okay, even Celtic will get, get to the knockout and that's 10 games, you know, so. I, I wish it was coming in next season. No, I'm not going to lie. I'm a, I'm a bit excited. But, yeah. I really do think anything sort of fresh is, is good. Um, but yeah, I mean, in, in regards to the European Super League, this thing isn't going away. This A22 no. are going to be pushing it. So we're going to be hearing a lot more of them, whether they actually seduce these clubs into getting involved. We'll, we'll have to wait and do, see. Do you, do, you, do you think Celtic is liable to be seduced? If I, I said that I don't think it will happen with them, but if it does happen, do you think you think Celtic would jump on? Hundred percent, without thinking, without thinking. I think the okay. way our the way our board works with Peter Lawwell, the back, way they hire managers, is that what you're saying? Uh, Peter Lawwell back in the old uh, chairman outfit, you know. Oh, remember, he's, he he was part of the old group. Remember, he was exactly. on the board. That was exactly. remember that. He loves all that part. Yeah. He, lo- he loves That's he good. loves having. Kind of power. It's good. There's probably good expenses and stuff. Ah, exactly. Um, just a little bit of transfer news. It's not in any way confirmed transfer news, but it's always kind of good then to see. Oh, it's, it's starting. It's starting. Fotis uh, Ionidis uh, in Celtic yeah. transfer link. He's 23 years old. Uh, he's quoted as saying, I'm happy to improve continuously year by year, game by game. This is my goal to help my team as much as I can, both Panathinaikos and the national team. It goes without saying that I can offer even more. I know it as well as my teammates. It's only a matter of time before I start improving and playing at an even higher level. Okay. He's a Greek, Greek international. Uh, Panathinaikos are on the verge of their first title in 12 years. Um, but reports in Greece are suggesting that Celtic have been linked. Five goals and 33 appearances doesn't really fill me with the greatest of um, confidence. Uh, Christian, is the, um, what's your thoughts on this? So I had a very quick look at his stats just like in, in the league this season. And yeah, it's it's a, quite a few subs appearances in that. I think overall in, in the league, he's got uh, 1,300 in 40 minutes, so which is some very quick matches, about 14 whole games, five goals within that. So that is per 90, 0.34, so, which is okay. It's XG, Christopher, 0.43. Per, so which I think, I think his numbers, when you break them down per 90 on how much he's, he's, he's played for Pantinakis are good. I mean, I, I'm not as close on the Greek league, maybe as I, as I should be, but always one of the better teams. So you would expect a striker for them to, to put up decent stats as well. But um, so it doesn't doesn't seem like he's he's been starting a lot of games recently. But you know, early in the season he was mostly coming off the bench. So I guess he's you can say he is on a decent tra- trajectory, and his, his numbers are pretty good. But that, that's without having having seen them at all. I just see if you get another Greek striker, can he? 
I hope he just can can do some of the other stuff because I can't go through that all that uh, discussion again. Oh, Jesus! <laughs> if, it's if it's just a guy who scores goal, which which is you know you know I hate tire strikers if they just score goals. That's goal, goals are pointless. Yeah, I, come on. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so let's get another Greek striker. That, that'd be fun. Do you think I'm that, all for it? Do you know in regards to? Uh, we look at kind of markets that aren't necessarily kind of uh, mainstream targets for the top five. For example, we've looked at obviously Japan with um, with Ange's experience there, and you know the place we've got them from from there in terms of their level and quality have been exceptional. With the odd kind of um, kind of bump in the road, which you can only expect. South Korea, obviously, we, we've had previous experience there with um, you know Ki Sung Young and stuff, and um, Chad Ure as well. But I just I wonder if we will look at kind of leagues like Greece and maybe seeing potential there. Um, or yeah. obviously this is, there's no real kind of actual links, but do you think they will be scouring Europe as well as, you know, Asia and, you know, other markets? I I hope so. Like, I think when the Europa League games were on there um, recently, I think it's myself and Kieran were kind of discussing in one of the chats that, Ghent in uh, in Belgium also they signed a twenty year old Nigerian from the Norwegian league in January and now he had twelve goals in eight games and Union in in Belgium obviously who's uh, absolutely horrendous performance against Rangers obviously in the, the playoff but they've signed uh, another Nigerian from Budapest uh, Boniface who was on the subs bench against Celtic um, in the summer as well and he's got. At last summer, he's got like 19 goals in 41 games. So I think you need to do that. Like clubs like a Belgium league it shouldn't really have any bigger appeal to, you know, than the Scottish LA Celtic. So I think you have to have the confidence and go and scour and try and bring in these players at the point where they, they can come to you and explode rather than then. Or if they, if they go to a club in Belgium and do well, you know, it's a bit difficult to get them at that point. The caveat with that is also then you, we always talk about the, the pressure of Celtic. And I, and I think that is a case of you can probably go to Belgium and have a, an adjustment parent and the pressure wouldn't that be that big. Um, if, you know, if the goal is to, you know, maybe get into the playoff, top four, top eight in Belgium, do well in the Europa League. Then when you come to Celtic and you, you know, the focus and, and the pressure to, to win everything right away. It is a kind of bit more difficult transition, but sometimes I think you just need to take that leap of faith. Because I think like someone like, oh, you know, that's a market Celtic. No, uh, South Korea. Uh, and they've gone in and he's, you know, he wasn't playing for the best team. You know, he wasn't like, he was a talent, but they always had done their scouting with him. They always had done the, the homework and, and they got him for a great price. And, and he come in, he, he can contribute Straight away, well, he needs to improve, yeah, but he's he's already contributing. So, and I think yeah. if you replicate that research, that 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 knowledge across Europe, there'll be so many you you can pick up, and, and you have to pick up. Uh, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, you know, Mark Lowell and Joe Dudgeon um, being brought in from the City Group are foundations, I guess, to kind of look at those markets and, you know, get analysis and, you know, all, all the kind of stuff that we're looking for in regards to bringing players of talent in who maybe haven't been noticed yet. So, again, it just, if this is, the, you know, a real start of, you know, a kind of genesis of bringing in really talented young players who 
aren't quite there yet, then I'm all for it. Um, right, let's we'll, we'll move on to a question from Liam um, in the WhatsApp. Um, he sent this the other day. It's, uh, it's more art pieces. It is, uh, is, quite, it is, quite uh, it is good. I'm going to break it down. Um, I just got up the agenda. Thanks for picking up my question. No problem. Uh, I wanted to build up on the refereeing conversation, if that's okay. I know we talk about this more than we would like, but with international break, I thought it may be a good time to discuss it in depth. The main reason I wanted to pick this up is that I read an article recently which is sort of a deep dive into EPL referees and it was a real eye-opener for me. The standards they are held to and processes training they go through just seem so robust and professional, including like including things like specific ratings each game out of 100, with bigger games reserved for the highest rated and poor ratings resulting in demotion down the leagues, which is both a professional but also quite significant financial downgrade. Very in-depth and specific training from positioning to psychology. Jesus. To re-watching old games together and discussing decisions. Allegiances declared with refs not allowed to ref their clubs. Oh, well, that's... There we go. That's it. That's Allegiances declared with refs not allowed to ref their own clubs um, or their club's rivals, um, which happens regularly in Scotland. Plus, a lot more. I'd really recommend the article. Um, they are, he sent a link to the article and I read through it today and it's very, very good. Reading this, it really brought home to me how far behind we are. Admittedly, I don't know how Scottish refs are trained, but we do know that they don't declare allegiances. We see refs make mistakes seemingly without demotion or penalty, unless you really call them, riffing them. Um, They are not full-time professionals. So why are we not introducing such a professional structure? Is it just a financial thing? If so, I would argue the investment required may actually be returned via better product and therefore more lucrative TV deals. Even if it isn't fully returned, we deserve a more professional game with higher standards. I know you guys talked about the rubbish Levine was coming out with on the agenda, but rather than focus on removing teams, why don't we invest and professionalise properly in our game with refing being an obvious start? I've always been a bigger subscriber to the paranoia perspective than the incompetence take, as I do see everything through a Celtic lens rather than a Scottish football lens. But reading this article as well as seeing decisions over the league last weekend really resonate with me. And brought home the fact that there's so much we could and should be doing that we aren't. Uh, great question. Great comments, Liam. Um, why don't we invest in referees? Uh, Christian, what's your thoughts? Yeah, the, the article you mentioned is, is really good. Uh, and I recommend reading it as well. So there's a couple of things that's just stuff. I didn't actually realise that it's twenty over 20 years ago since referees in England started to become professional. You know, and at the moment, if you're, uh, as I said in that article, if if, if the, the Premier League ref that full time, it depends on your seniority and stuff. But they're taking home around seventy to two hundred thousand pounds a year, and that is before you add in match fees in addition to to, to basic salaries. So, well, in Scotland, it's. I think some referees have been part time on it. I think was it Craig Thompson, his name was. Yeah, was part time, but essentially it's it's about what you get a fee pay per game. So I think it's at the moment eight hundred and fifty pounds per game. If you're the referee, four hundred and fifty for an assistant referee or VAR, and then obviously you get a, a mileage allowance to to get around. So another thing that so there will be elements of that. You know, evaluation and fitness criteria and stuff like that. But I, I think it is a very good, simple, simple fact that if you have, if you do something full time and you can dedicate that to everything through that and you're getting paid like really well, 
you are going to get better referees. And it's, it's like people say, well, it's objectivity, but there was, it really struck me was the physicality of that. There was a quote from that article saying that there was a fixture in last August and the referee was Peter Banks. And he achieved a top speed for, like, in terms of sprinting that was faster than all but two of the players on the pitch. Right, so, so that's in a Premier League game. He was the third fastest person on the pitch in terms of a top speed. So you kind of go, well, these guys, they are really, really fit. And there was stuff like in there saying like, oh, you know, the optimal distance to judge a decision isn't like close by. It's about 10 to 15 meters and stuff like that. So uh, I'm not sure Scottish referees knows this as well. But if you have the physical capability to always be in the correct position, you are going to get, get more decision correctly. I think it just reminded me of a bully column just being in the way all the time yeah. <laughs> in terms of you know things like that. So I think the simple fact that, yes, if you invest in full-time professional referees, you're going to get better referee. And and I think, is that worth it? Yeah, I, I think it probably would be, you know, in, in terms of, you know, it's even just the money spent on bar and not it's not going to go away, but that's a good chunk of investment you, you could have invested in, in, in referees. And I think the other thing you talk about in terms of do you have to declare allegiance in, in Scotland? You don't. It's probably come a lot down to that. If you exclude yeah, all that- Celtic and Rangers fans from, from refereeing, essentially, well, you're not exclude them, but you're essentially excluding them from refereeing the biggest games. Your pool will probably be a lot less, but I, I, I wouldn't. And then you go into like, oh, how, how do you define an allegiance and stuff like that? But to be honest, if you invested it, it would improve. I, I think it's as simple as that. If you if you gave if you advertised a role to be a football referee with a really good salary, people who wouldn't necessarily have an interest in actual supporting of foot they might play football they might be football fans but you know if, if that was a role and an option for people you'd get a bigger pool and you would get yeah. more people who wouldn't necessarily be affiliated with celtic or rangers and i also think it i think if you ever look at look at refereeing it seems like you have to start really early to get to the top of the game and a lot of people are just not going to do that to start start as a teenager and, and, and to do that i, I think if you have the physical capability to run around a football match, honest, yeah, you need experience in refereeing games. You you can't start at the top, but I, was, I almost said that how hard can it be? It, it is hard, but it's not like I don't think you need ten years of experience in like you know Sunday league football or or youth ranks to 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 get people in. I, I think you can essentially have a fast track system for people where yeah, if if it's if you're interested in doing that, if you okay, it might help with practical experience and stuff like that. But uh, you know, three to four years should should be able. You should, I think you should go from scratch to be able to become a Premier League referee if if you're good at it. See, you know, if, if if it's uh, the story, I don't know if I've I probably have told that a number of times, but um, our good friend Marek Robert, who does some editing for the Cynic behind the scenes and um, was been on a couple of episodes over the years, he uh, he was quite a rated footballer when he was like thirteen or fourteen. Um, and he was saying that he played a tournament. I can't remember where the tournament was, but I think Willie Collum's like two years older than Marek. And um, Willie Collum was refereeing at that age. Like Willie Collum was refereeing at like 15, 16 years old. He was refereeing matches. Like he never, clearly he never wanted to be a footballer. He wanted to be a referee. And 
that's mental. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I think so. I mean, so I, I think you do that. The, the only thing, like I'd mention of this as well, is it's like the openness of that article. And I think that's a lot of what drives frustration in, in referees a lot about Scottish football. It's like, see if you like you had a really open, transparent process in terms of what referees have to do, what to go to have their judged, the league tables, almost like that. And you... And also how you communicate the VAR decisions and say, open. I think that would help. Now, I don't know if you've told this on, on the pod before, but like before we went full time, I used to work with an assistant referee. And so he was one of the best assistant referees in Scotland. And but he was also he was doing just literally the same job as me, full time job, but he would have, you know, games at the weekend. He it was it was in UEFA FIFA one as well. Until he was <laughs> part of, I don't know if you remember the, the Borussia Dortmund, was it playing PSG at the time? Uh, uh, there was a big offset decision. Essentially, they got wrong, and after that, it was it was completely demoted. But a couple of years after that, we, we tried to get him on the podcast, right? Because like for a feature to just like go through some of this, and it's and it, it was it was a really interesting guy because he'd come in on on the Monday office on the Monday, and there was a lot of people who go ah. What about this? And then he like because and it, it walked people through it. Like, and this is why we did it. And it, it was really interesting. So, so I thought that would be a good pot. But obviously, it was still a referee at that point, so he had to put it through the SFA and stuff like that. And I think I've told you this. I don't think I said it, but but the reason why the SFA essentially blocked him from coming on the pod, and the reason why is that I think it was um, director of communications. We don't have to mention his name. He'd gone on the Cynic website, right? And one of the first articles. I think this was was when we were still doing a few match reports or something. I think it was Martin Friel had written something about Partick Thistle that wasn't maybe the most generous. It was something like that. And he says, nah, I mean, if somebody sees this, you on that pod. And then, you know, something for Partick Thistle. You can't put me on the Partick Thistle game again. <laughs> and I went, what? And it's like, you don't have to, like, have an allegiance. Yeah. But if you go to a pod where someone has said something about some another team, party Fissel, they would pull you off. I mean, the irony is he was a party Fissel fan as well. <laughs> so, I, so, I mean, so that kind of tells you, and this is not many years ago, but that kind of tells you about the lack of like openness or at least willingness to kind of you know go out in the media and actually talk to people. So, because I thought it'd be really interesting to have like a yeah. former referee on, on a podcast and kind of walk through it. And, and they, they they probably challenge us, us on a lot of things saying, well, this, you have to think about this. But I think, I think that dialogue would be good, but it's, it's, it's all like close yeah. shutters, isn't it? Yeah. I think the, the kind of final point on it from my perspective is that um, Scottish football is the perfect, if it's no broke, don't fix it. We've been doing this for years and we'll just keep doing it for years. And if it is broke, oh, it's not right. It's, <laughs> if it's not, if it's not broke, we'll, we'll work our way around it. But yeah, the, the play, I'm, I'm sure some of the referees are happy with a full-time job and the extra income. And the, why well, should they be? I, 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 I do think like, because my pal was, he had a job, but he was, you know, at that point, he was getting 500, a bit more every weekend. And then he was doing UEFA games, which is, is, is thousands of pounds. So, Obviously, a lot of people go, well, i got a full-time job and I can bring home... They're having their cake uh, and eating it. Do you know what I mean? Like why should they... A few thousand a month as well. So I can kind of see why they go, ah, well, I don't want to go full-time because I want to keep my job because I'm not going to be refereeing until I'm, you know, 50. Which is a good point because if you want full-time referees, you have to pay them well because they have an expiry date, you know, in terms of how on the 
and obviously, yeah, you, you, so you have to have a path for them after they stop refereeing as well, but you have to pay them enough so it's comfortable and, and they can essentially save money and be ready for a transition into real life again. So, but I, I can, can totally see what referees in Scotland's go. I is a lot of time off. Well, it's, it's, you know, we don't have any much weekends, but I can have a job. I can essentially have two jobs. You know, because if, if, if you're getting three games, three, four games a month, that's what plus mileage, like three, four grand a month on top of your regular job. Like, like that's two jobs. Exactly. So incredible. Uh, let's, uh, I'm sure we'll come back to this debate. Thanks for the question, Liam. It was very good. Um, international football. It's, it's the international break. Uh, you've got some points and stuff you want to talk about. I'll, I'll, I'll put, it, put it over to you, Christian. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 probably like it, we've got a lot of maybe not having able to cover everything we have on general. Get some on the review on, on Tuesday. Yeah, yeah. Some more. But yeah, it's just international football. I thought we good. Mikey Johnson, you know, uh, coming on for Ireland. I, I thought that was interesting in terms of I am fascinated by. I am fascinated by international football in 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 a lot of sense. You know, I'm I'm a big fan of international football. I think that comes with you know the age growing up in yeah probably. But, but like growing up in Norway, um, not to go on the big tangent, but when I grew up like in the eighties, Norway was terrible at everything, like everything. You know, in in terms of sport, it felt like that anyway. But I think uh, so lots of things like we got awarded the, the Winter Olympics in 1994 and 1988. We had a, a great Olympics in 92. Suddenly, we were like the best winter country in the world. But at the same time, pointed Eagles in 91 and qualified for the World Cup in 94, which is like only a few years before. You, it's inconceivable that Norway would, would do that. So, so. And a lot of like the patriotism and, and the national identity in Norway is so tied up in, in sports and especially from that era. So I think it's always interesting to me, like people's relationship with the national team. Pretty much, it's, England is a weird one because there's a lot of English people you, you'll know as well just do not like the English football team at all. Yeah. I think it's a lesser degree here in Scotland, but that's why I thought like Celtic obviously have, has a complicated. Celtic fans have had a complicated relationship with Scotland um, for a lot of reasons, historicals and so on. But uh, it was interesting for yourself. Like, you are a big Scotland fan. And it's a really weird question to ask someone who is so into football and and they live in Scotland to say, why are you a Scotland fan? But in Scotland, it's it's kind of, it's almost a legitimate question to a Celtic fan, really. Yeah, um, it's kind of hard to answer. Um, in a lot of ways, you know, my mother being from Donegal, my father growing up in the Gorbals, both my grandparents being from Donegal, and my whole I, my whole family basis basis being, uh, you know, Irish. Um, and yeah. I, I do have an affinity with the Irish national team, and I always have. Um, but I don't know. I, I like. I really like Scotland. I always have. The national team has always. I. I it, it's kind of hard to explain, and I think it's to do with. I was raised with a great pride of Glasgow. My father's very, very proudly, proudly Glaswegian. Um, and I guess that kind of national identity comes from Glasgow more than it comes from Scotland. And the national team being based in, in Scotland. And yeah, I, I think it's to do with a sort of connectivity to this city rather than this country. But 
Also, it's to do with images. I, I remember seeing when I was younger, Roy Aitken, the Celtic captain, being Celtic, uh, being Scotland captain, Paul McStay having the Scotland armband at time. You know, in the 90s, late uh, kind of, you know, late 80s, early 90s, lots of Celtic players playing for Scotland. Um, I just kind of connected both up, both, connected them both together. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, most of my friends don't really support Scotland, like, at all. Um and it's not like they're anti-Scottish, they just don't give a shit. Um, and I think the our age being, I'm, I'm 40, you're, what, 42? Um, okay. well, yeah. I don't have to say that, but okay. <laughs> that's, that's my age. Yeah. But we, we came from a period in, a, in an era where Scotland were qualifying for things, you know, uh, Euro, World, World Cup 1990. Norway was qualifying for things yeah, as well, yeah. Exactly. Um, and then when that kind of, when that kind of abject failure really starts to really starts to bleed into the abject failure we had before was not being able to qualify out of the groups, but being at the big show, being at the big show, but not being able to go further than the group stage, but you're still there. And then it genuinely just became real abject failure to the point where I think a lot of people just were like, I'm not going to put myself through this again. You know, I, I, I've got enough kind of heartache with, with Celtic, you know, and a lot enough pressure with Celtic and a lot enough stress with Celtic. I don't need it with anything else. So when it comes to international weekend, I'll just kind of. Also, there's plenty of people who just don't have that cultural identity with Scotland. I don't really have a cultural identity with I, Scotland. I've got an identity with the football team. I don't give a shit about the rugby team. I don't really care about what Scotland do in any other kind of form. I mean, I want them to do well, but I, I don't really care. Whereas when the Scotland national team lose, it genuinely affects me. So. I've got yeah, an, yeah. I think, yeah. As any fandom, I think it's, it's tangled up in a lot of different things, right? Um, as I said, it's it's very tangled up. Sports is very tangled up, to, up in Norwegian national identity. But it is interesting that I think, in terms of, I, I do wonder. Uh, I for my sense, I, I studied I studied sport national identity uh, at university, so I can go on forever, but. You do from the outside coming to Scotland as well, and this will be very generic. But coming from outside, I always felt like in the past, Celtic fans and Celtic would have an opposition to Scotland for like the national teams, but also a lot of things because of you know the treatment of you know Catholic you know immigrants coming here, but also the sense that. To me, it always seems weird that there was a sense that Rangers players were picked over Celtic players for, for a lot of time for Scotland. And Scotland was almost part of an establishment that had very close tie to unionism, you know, and the Church of Scotland, all that. Is, you know, very loose. But I, I do wonder, like, especially the last 10 years, or even the last 15, 20 years, when the SNP has come to power and that question of independence has been on, like it's, it's been there all the time and like independence referendum as well. Cause from the outside, it always seems to me that it's kind of created that thing where and this is very, very generic. Cause you know, I, 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 I know racist fans who, who support independence as well, but it do seems from the outside that this kind of stereotype of now of, of of Rangers fans is now they're leaning towards the Britishness rather than the Scottishness. Yeah. And the Scottish independence has become almost an, a little bit of a lot of Celtic fans seems to a lot to be, you know, again, very, very generic seems to more pro independence thing. So I do wonder if that thing is kind of where I'm seeing as 
to Scotland as an independent Scotland is not seen as more kind of slightly rebellious, I don't know, or, or slightly like anti-establishment, anti-union, anti, yeah, almost anti-racist. I, I do wonder if that at some point, maybe not our generation, because we've been imprinted, but people like who's maybe born in the 2000s and, and the independence has always been there, whether that there'll be a, even among Celtic fans, a younger fan will have a fostering of more Scottish identity or come out in the Scottish football teams. And it's a lot, that's, that's very generic. It's, it's very, we don't have time to go through that on, on this pod, but I find it really, really fascinating because it's all tied up in expressions of a national identity, which is football is for me is one of the biggest ones. Um, I think it's interesting that, so for, I've got a lot of friends and a lot of cousins and stuff who support Ireland. They were born either in Glasgow or they were born in Scotland and they support Ireland. Yeah. And, um, and and part of that is... Like, and, and the, sorry, that's that's sort of where I brought it up. It's like, because play like McEady, you know, James McCarthy, Mikey Johnson, that, they, they will have different reasons for, for choosing Ireland, but it, it's there. Like the affinity, I don't think they would have chosen Ireland if, if that affinity wasn't there. Charlie Gallagher was the first Glasgow-born yeah. uh, player to to move to choose to play for Ireland but what I would say is in regard to um you know that kind of being brought up from an Irish Catholic family and 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 supporting Ireland I totally understand that and that's fine I don't have a problem with that at all of course I, I do support Ireland as I say but when it comes to my point of view for me them supporting where their, their ancestors are from is almost a sort of not a rebellious thing but it's like well I'm going to support the people who support me Right. Yeah. Whereas it, I, it's, it's a comment on the, the situation you, you, you feel you're in, in in this country, obviously. Where, whereas my point of view is, I'm not going to have someone tell me who I can and can't support. I'm not yeah. going to have a kind of Scottish kind of unionist right winger turn around and say, "You're not from here. You can't support them." I'm as Scottish as you are, pal. I'll support who I want, and in a way, that's even rebellious. That sort of idea of I'm going to support where I'm from, and you can't tell me that I can't because I'm as much from here as you are. And it's, it's, it, I think it's got a lot of parallels with the minority groups who are like persecuted, you know, but they take control of that that kind of own language. Yeah, you know, what I mean, and then they end up in the same. Well, you know, just because I'm, you know, this this part of this majority, don't presume that I. You know, don't tell me what I can't do. I, I, I guess, you know, in yeah. a sense, it's that. Yeah. Um, the, the other two points I'll make is um, my dad used to go and watch Scotland um, in the 60s and legitimately, I mean, he's told me stories where he's had to leave because they were booing Jimmy Johnson and, and chanting yeah. for uh, Willie Henderson to come on. Um, if you look at the caps that the Lisbon Lions got, it's outrageous. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I went to a Scotland game in about 2012 and um, there was at half time there was a wee uh, kind of wee competition where it's like oh we've got the twelve SPFL um, Premiership teams uh, and it was like a wee kid like a ten year old kid um, it's like twelve ten year old kids wearing the top Celtic top Rangers top Aberdeen top Hibs top all the top teams and they were doing a wee penalty shootout and it was like here's Kieran from Celtic and no one really made a noise and Kieran scored the goal and everyone cheered here's Duncan from Aberdeen no one made the noise and everyone cheered <laughs> here's Stuart from Rangers and the entire stadium booed they booed him uh, and that just kind of shows you that switch that kean of going from kind of that extreme of you know Rangers, Scotland fans. <laughs> what, sense, 
Yeah, once that's that, that's a shame if you tend it. Other side, that's so funny. I boo, I boo, I boo till my throat hurt, Christian. I'll be honest with you, but it, it just it just shows you the kind of. Yeah, but I, I, I think there culture. is a switch in there. Like, I, I do think there was, was a switch where almost where Celtic, quite good reason, was seen as almost like anti Scott owner or wouldn't want to be part of that. And you said you wanted to be part of what the ancestors were part of it back to you. It's almost been that seems where Rangers is almost rejecting that Scottishness now. Yeah. Because Scottishness and that seemed as almost an anti Britishness, which is I think it's quite funny as well. But is, I think it's, it's really, really fascinating. Absolutely. And we could talk for hours, but we have to wrap up. I know, I know. So we, we had a whole thing about loan players and how they're going to look for it tied into your brain. Tell you what, oh, I'll, I'll pick that up. Me and Graham can talk about it on the review. Absolutely. Fantastic. Look forward to that. Look forward to getting a deep dive on that. Um, this has been the weekend update. What have we got coming up this weekend? Uh, well, on uh, tomorrow, we've got Celtic Roulette, which is myself, Chris, Christian, myself, Alan, and Barry. We've got a big tombola, lots of Celtic uh, names, places, results, games. We kind of pick them out, have a chat about them, um, a lot of fun. And then on Sunday, just it's Dr. Carlin Celtic Monster. Um, yeah. it's, it's a new Paul Carlin feature. It's a hell of a lot of fun. I'm sure everyone will get the opportunity. It's wild. It's Paul is kind of like the Werner Herzog of the city. Are you sure you, you want to give him this free reign? Because he, he might create a monster at some point. And he, so, you know, he I, has. I think, I think maybe have already. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but no, it's a, it's a really, really fun podcast. Uh, I, I was the first guest on it. Um, I recorded during the week and it's a lot of fun. So check that out. Two features coming up uh, this weekend. Uh, Christian Wilf, we'll see you on the review on Tuesday. Rio Tuesday, maybe some other podcasts next week as well. At least one, maybe. Yeah, definitely. Beyond the the scoreboard, maybe something else. Looking forward to that. Yeah, Uh, Christian, pleasure as always, and we'll speak to you very soon, sir. I I hope I updated your weekend sufficiently, everybody. Have a nice weekend. Oh dear, oh dear. Thanks. That wasn't that good. From Christian Will, from myself, Chris Gallagher. This has been the weekend update, and we'll speak to you down the road. (laughs) 